spend our time looking at a story like this, what is its relevance? Well, I'm not even going to get through the end of the passage tonight when you're going to start seeing points of connection between you and these people. And the reason the author starts the the story this way is he's stacking the cards against Israel so that you know from the first page forward, the only hero you're going to find in this book is God himself. Nobody else. And the only hero you're going to find in history, he'll say, is God himself. And the only hero you're going to find in your story is God himself. So that's how we start. Judges 1, starting in verse 27. Uh, It's printed out in your bulletin if you have it. We'll focus our attention in this passage on a half-hearted people and a whole-hearted God. We'll look at three things. Our distraction, our half-heartedness, and God's whole-heartedness. This is the word of the Lord. There's going to be a lot of weird Hebrew place names. Just deal with it. (laughs) The tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Bet Shan. Ta'anak, Dor, Ibliam, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements, because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. If I could add parentheses, the way God told them to. The tribe of Ephraim, he's going through all the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites like God had told them, living in Gezer. And so the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The tribe of Zebulun, they did it do. They failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahalal. And so the Canaanites continued to live among them. But the Canaanites were forced to work as slaves for the people of Zebulun. The tribe of Asher, them too, they failed to drive out the residents of Akko and Sidon and Elab and Azib and Helba and Aphek and Rehob. Instead, the people of Asher moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land for they had failed to drive them out. Likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anoth. Instead, they, they moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land. Nevertheless, the people of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anoth were forced to work as slaves for the tribe, for the people of Naphtali. As for the tribe of Dan, the Amorites forced them back into the hills and they would not let them come down into the plains. The Amorites were determined to stay in Mount Harris, Ahalan, and Shabim. But when the descendants of Joseph became stronger, they made their move. They forced the Amorites to work as slaves. The boundary of the Ammonites ran from Scorpion Pass to Selah and continued upward from there. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said to the Israelites, to all these tribes, to the people of God, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant, my promise with you. For your part, you were not supposed to make any covenants with the people, the Canaanites living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy or knock down their altars to false gods. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. There'll be thorns in your side. And their gods, these false gods, these idols will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly 
And so they called that place Bokim, which means weeping. And they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, teach us. You are the one who inspired these words to be written down for us. And you say they were recorded for our encouragement. You you must make that happen tonight. With all the clutter of places we don't know and people groups we haven't heard about before, uh, speak clearly into this. Teach us. Save us. We pray in your name. Amen. I know that's a lot. We'll take just simple little pieces tonight and just keep it simple. But I have a question for you that's probably appropriate on January 8th, 2020. Start of a new year, start of a new decade. How much do you want God? How badly do you want to be with him? How badly do you want to walk with him in his ways? Are you like me? You have a hunger for him. You crave him. You miss him. And you want more of him. Sometimes you feel like you're missing out. But then your, your notifications start dinging. And 30 minutes later, you're off in some weird ESPN land on your seventh article of a team you're not even interested in. Or you're like an hour into Disney+. Plus. Or you're back to school, which is always calling for more of your attention, always calling to study just a little bit more, get a little bit more ready for the test. Do your best intentions fall victim to, I'm just going to check Instagram real quick. I'm just going to play one more game on Xbox, and then I'll get back to that. It's January 8th. What happened to your intentions from January 1st? Did you start the year? I want to be closer to the Lord this year. I want to take him more seriously. I want to have more of him. I want to know him better. I want to be serious this year. And we find ourselves in these patterns, yielding ourselves so effortlessly to these distractions, right? And if that describes you the way it often describes me, does the daily repetition of of giving yourself to all these dings and distractions and urgencies, does it create some muscle memory in your soul, as it were, So that it just becomes habitual and patterned and it's easier the next time to give yourself to these things. And if that is true, have what used to be distractions now become the focus of your life, the object of your attention. Not a distraction from your attention, but the object of your attention. It's funny when you think about it. The way we talk about it with each other is we say, I got distracted from something. A lot of y'all just, you know, finals are a distant memory, hopefully not a traumatic memory, but you were dialed in, you're studying, you're focused on making it through this class or your finals. And there were things out there distracting you from that object of your attention. The funny thing is though, so when we say we're distracted from something, it presumes there was something that we were attentive to. But there's a funny thing that happens with these distractions that we habitually continually give ourselves to, whether they're subtle and tiny, like a ding on your phone or pervasive in in addictive patterns. What happens with the distraction is eventually when we continue to give ourselves to it, it becomes the focus of your life. It becomes the thing that you'll endure anything just to get back home to cozy up in bed and watch another two hours of Netflix. 
You can lead any Bible study. You can preach any sermon for me. You can endure any time with friends. You can go to church on a Sunday morning as long as you can get back to food afterwards. Or as long as you can get back to whatever it is for you, that, that habit, that pattern that just, it's so effortless. The distraction has now become the object of your attention, which means that God is no longer the object of your attention. He's the distraction. Does that make sense? It's this cruel shift what happens. And when he becomes a distraction, it's like any other distraction in our lives. We will either politely tolerate it and give it lip service or we'll eradicate it. Distractions usually kind of get the death sentence in our life. This thing's keeping me from what I need to be attentive to. We do this all the day. It might be abstract between you and the Lord, you and God, but with you and your roommates, have you ever had that friend or are you that friend where you moved in together this year because you just wanted to, to be together all the time? Your besties... But then the semester hits and your friend is working and they had a really hard semester and you never see her anymore. And you're like, what happened? The whole point of living together is so that we would see more of each other. Now I see less. And at first they said, I'm so sorry. I've just got all these things I'm trying to take care of. I got all these things at school and all these things at work. I'm sorry. Uh, the object, the, fo- the object of everyone's attention to the house was time together. The distractions were, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of this so I can spend more time with you. But as the semester pushed on, school or work or whatever else, the busyness, the urgency became the focus of their attention. And now you're the distraction, right? And boy, do you feel it when you're a distraction in your friend's life instead of an object for affection or an object for attention, right? Are you tracking with me? We feel it. How that subtle shift from being distracted by other things to the distraction becoming the object that we focus on. It raises these questions. Is God the main object of your attention? Or or has he become the distraction from your attention on other things? Has he become kind of the annoying distraction, the fly in your house that you just can't get rid of, so you've just allowed it to to be there? It keeps buzzing and bothering you or nagging at you. But you say, I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. Or have things that used to be distractions become your premier pursuit now? And he is not. In Judges, what I read to you, I know... It's a little bit out of context. If you started chapter one, it's not much help. <laughs> it's still out of, still kind of found, sounds foreign to our ears. But nothing that bad appears to be going on. You might have heard me kind of set this up and you say, it starts out bad and gets worse. You're like, what's so bad about this? All they did is they failed to drive out this wicked people, the Canaanites, who were the, the native inhabitants of the land, but they were corrupt to the core. Even the Canaanites said they were corrupt to the core. Even the Canaanites said they were dirtbags. You can dig up pots and scrolls that say that. And God had said to his people, cleanse the land. Israel, this new place was going to be Eden all over again. Paradise where God dwelled with his people in love and in peace. And it was going to be a billboard to the rest of the world. He said, cleanse the land. Because if you leave these people here, they will lead you astray. So knock down their altars 
get rid of all of the marks, any last mark of this idolatry, this, this religious game. If you leave it there, it'll pull you astray. It'll distract you from me. This doesn't seem that bad. I mean, we're not talking about like murder and sexual assault and all this terrible stuff that we will see later. It seems pretty benign right now. Come on, lay off. They kind of did the job. They kind of expelled the people from the land. They just left a few. So why is this so serious? What's so bad about this? Well, Israel is at a point of what I just read here where they already don't remember who they got distracted from in the first place. That shift has happened. Uh, There used to be these other things that distracted them from the God that they loved and knew loved them. And now they don't even know who they were distracted from in the first place. And so whenever he talks to them, whenever he calls them to obedience and tells them that he's faithful to them and he wants them, he wants us to be faithful to him. They're just like, who's this guy? That's where their hearts were at this moment. They were half hearted disciples. And it was subtle. They weren't super wayward, super bad. There's kind of bad, kind of half in, half out. And the reason I said to you, we're going to look at this book this spring is because we are half-hearted people. I'll just make that confession to you. And if you're new tonight, you're like, man, he's coming in hot tonight. Didn't even know me. And he just called me a half-hearted disciple. Well, I'm a half-hearted disciple. And everyone I know here is. So I'm just assuming you are too. Where's this tension in our hearts between I want God And I find him distracting to the other things I really, really want. I think you share that with me. Even those of you who um, are are very diligent, to your own credit, you're disciplined, you're spiritually disciplined. You get up every morning and, and you keep your appointment with the word of God. In those moments, is your heart all there? Is your mind all there? Uh, When you're not in those moments, is your heart panting for those moments like a deer pants for water? In your battle with temptation, with sin, whatever it is that besets you, is your heart all in that battle? Or is half of your heart or a tenth of your heart in that battle? But the things that God has asked of you, is your response all in or half in? All of us at best are half-hearted disciples. We're lukewarm people. Now, if you were a friend of one of these Israelites, one of these people back in this day, you were their buddy, how would you know? Because the problem was nothing super, like, nothing super obvious was going on. Israel would be surprised, I think Israel was surprised, that God took issue with the way that they were living and relating to him. I think they would have said, wait, what? Like, we're still going to church. We're kind of doing what you told us to do. You said, cleanse the land and we're going to battle against these people. We're just not fighting all the battles you've called us to fight. So what was it? What was the evidence? What's the evidence in our lives? Let's get practical. These friends of ours had fear and timidity all over their lives. They were fearful people, timid people, not brave people, not courageous people, or maybe they were courageous in their own strength. Like they put on their game face and tried to make stuff happen. But more often than not, when they lacked the resources to do something God had called them to do, they freaked out. They panicked. They ran for the hills. 
They lost this gripping awareness of who God was. That's why God has to remind them through his messenger in the beginning of chapter two. He has to explicitly say, hey, do you remember? I'm the one who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery into this land. I'm the one that's given you victory, military victory all throughout this place that was filled with your enemies. And now it's filled with you. God has to reintroduce himself and say, wait a second, who do you think I am? That's who I am. Egypt of that day was like America today. It was the military superpower of the world. The Canaanites were nothing. It was like Fiji. Ooh. And God is saying, I toppled America. And this seemingly omnipotent military, I just flicked it over and it just sunk. And you're worried about Fiji? Do you know who I am anymore? That's why they were so fearful as they'd lost such an awareness of who he actually is, of who they're dealing with, of who they're in relationship with, of who made them. Are you? How fuzzy is your sense of that? They'd lost a sense of gratitude for the things that God had done. Same part of chapter two, the beginning of it. They'd lost a sense of, I mean, talk about a, waking up every day just with an awareness of how merciful God is. He has given me so much that I have, I have done nothing to warrant this, nothing to, to deserve the good, sweet, steady, durable things that he's put in my life, surrounded me with ways, protected me and sustained me and blessed me. They'd lost that sense of gratitude and had given way to grumbling. They'd lost that sense that God was leading them well. And so they start Monday morning quarterbacking every command of his. Really? Really? Did he really mean that? Is there a, is there a better way, a more convenient way forward? What are the consequences of all this stuff, of this forgetfulness, of this losing sight of who they're dealing with? What's the consequences in your friend's life if you're trying to diagnose them? or these people's lives, the consequences were that refrain. It happened seven times. I'm sure you caught it. They failed to deliver. They failed to drive out the people living in all of these particular cities. They failed to follow the Lord, their God, their deliverer, their savior. They failed to follow him into battle to clean this land and to set up shop of new life with them. And that's, man, the author, he's not leaving any doubt that that's important here. They failed to follow the Lord in these places. Why? Why was God so intent on cleansing it? It's the very last verse in the first part of this page. Verse three, the Lord says, they will be thorns in your side and their gods, their idols will be a constant temptation to you. And um, the other evidence in their lives is that they have a cavalier, flippant, casual relationship with sin. Now, I know we come from different backgrounds. Some of you might have been raised in a place where sin was a word you've heard about. Some of you, that's a kind of a newer word, and you're like, really, we're still talking about this word? That's kind of antiquated. Don't we have better explanations for why people are the way they are? Well, the Bible is just going to kind of put its cards on the table and speak candidly with us. And the way that it describes this word sin, whether you use it and are familiar with it or not, is more less like an object that you can manage and more like a terrorist guerrilla force 
that you can't manage. Our battle with sin is like a quagmire. It's a guerrilla war. It's not this conventional thing of like, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and it's going to yield this result. It's like a city full of terrorists, hell-bent on creating chaos, hell-bent on popping out of places you never expected. The problem was that their attitude towards sin was so simplistic, as if it was something they could just manage, negotiate with, compromise with, tolerate its presence. They had an attitude of kind of a quack surgeon who is operating on you, removing a cancerous tumor, who's just like, yeah, I mean, maybe there's cancer cells still around the edges of where the tumor was, but I mean, it's not a tumor. It's not that bad. And six months later, you're right back because it grew. It had a life of its own. The Bible describes God for your sake is honest with you about this force, this power that is so much bigger than you and me. It is not manageable. It is not an object that can be moved around by our hands, but it is a force. It is like Dart and Stranger Things 2 with Dustin. It looks like a cute little lizard. Then it looks like a creepy little lizard. You're like, okay, I'm going to not play with you as much when I get home from school. Kind of getting weird. And then it grows up to this full-blown demodog that just looks like hell personified. Sin evolves. It, it is a terrorist. It does not settle for peace treaties or negotiated settlements. It always takes more life. It's when you give a mouse a cookie, time. Always wants more ground. Can never settle for what it has of you. Is always looking to spread its fire, its destruction into new places. That was a symptom of a half-hearted disciple. Is a cavalier, flippant, casual Come on, bro, don't take it so seriously attitude towards sin that is like a a cosmic terrorist force unleashed inside of us, wreaking havoc in every way. This is another symptom that I found uh, convicting for myself. They hid their I won'ts behind I can'ts. When they should have probably more honestly and authentically, authentically said to the Lord, I won't do this or that. They said, I can't do this or that. This would rely on you reading the rest of chapter one, because before I started reading in verse 19, they say, we can't go out to battle against this, this army in this town because they have chariots. And again, remember what the Lord had just shown them and shown their forefathers and, and mothers before them of what he had done to people with chariots. They were no match for the Lord. If he has your back, their fear had blinded them. Their fear had crippled them. Their courage melted away. We can't do, go do that, Lord. We don't have the resources. We don't have the equipment. So they stayed back. What should have been honestly acknowledged as we won't follow you was spun and advertised and managed, and it became we can't. And they do it in here as well. They don't. Obey God, verse 27, because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. God says, cleanse this city from its corrupt inhabitants, which will lead you astray and make a shipwreck of your souls. And they say, well, we can't because they said they want to stay. I can't. Was hiding and I won't. We won't hide, say, or sorry, we can't hide and say we won't or we wouldn't. 
because they're measuring their ability and their potential by their own strength and ability. I do that all the time, friends. The things that I get scared about are precisely the things I think I lack the resources to pull off. Clear places that God has called me to engage. And I say, well, I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough emotional bandwidth this week. There's no, I've been battling this particular sin pattern for 17 years in my life. I can't. I can't say no to those sexual desires or those attractions. Friends, I say this gently and tenderly and as a fellow struggler and sinner. Are there things in your life and places in your life right now that are actually, I won't trust you, Lord. And you've, you've repackaged them and I can't. God, what she did to me, I can't forgive her. I can't get over this. I can't let go of the bitterness. You're calling me to trust you with next summer. I'm graduating. I don't know what I'm doing. How am I? And you're, I can't not be crippled by anxiety every day about this. Friends, could it be that it's more and I won't? I won't entertain the possibility that my father has my back, that he loves me, that he cares for me. The Israelites' evidence of half-hearted discipleship was hiding behind I can'ts. Tim Keller was helpful to me in understanding this. He said, when we rely on ourselves and base our walk with God on our own calculations instead of simply obeying, we find ourselves making decisions like the Israelites. It's halfway discipleship, which eventually leads to no discipleship at all. If you read on in this passage, the Israelites, when they felt strong enough, when they were in a good mood on a good day, when they were up for it, they totally did whatever the Lord wanted. And then some, the second part of verse 27 and verse 28, it's like when they felt strong enough, they went out amongst the Canaanites and guess what they did? They did the very thing God had told them earlier, never do. And he said, this conquest of the Canaanites, it's not a, this is not kind of an ethnic cleanse. This is not a, a, a traditional imperial conquest where you get all their stuff. You are doing a spiritual cleansing of a corrupt land. Never, he said, take them as slaves. Never take their stuff. Never brutalize them. Every single time when they feel strong, they say, well, Let's not, let's not drive these people out because they might come back. Let's enslave them and let them make money for us. When they felt strong, they Monday morning quarterbacked all of God's commands and did it their way. And that really becomes a theme of this book. Those are the symptoms and many more of half-hearted discipleship. And it's in me and it's in you. And the book of Judges is in your Bible because this half-hearted discipleship is in your heart. This is a part of God's work of redemption in your life. It has to be. If you're honest with yourself, this has to be part of what he is getting at in us and redeeming in us and saving us from. I was thinking um, as we were, as I was looking at this, you know, we're talking a lot about half-heartedness and distraction. And I'm thinking, well, what about God's heart? Is he half-hearted? Is he wholehearted? Is he empty-hearted? And what are all the permutations and you know, when you match up, I'm half-hearted, he's half-hearted, or I'm half-hearted, he's whole-hearted, or I'm empty-hearted and he's half-hearted. What are the different permutations you can assemble there and what's the result of it? Have you ever seen a marriage, maybe it's your parents, maybe it was your parents, where it's just a cold marriage? 
husbands kind of, per- they're just coasting. They're perfectly content with where they're at with each other. It's like, I have no desire to get to know you any better or serve you or grow. And she has no desire to get to know him any better and grow. They're just kind of each in their own lane doing their thing. He's half-hearted. She's half-hearted. What's the result? It actually works. They don't step on each other's toes because neither of them want anything from the other. They're just kind of resigned to the status quo. If you think God is half-hearted towards you, marginally interested, and you're marginally interested in him, half-hearted towards him, you might have what seems to be a pretty good relationship with him, but is actually not at all evidence of intimate communion and trust and fellowship, but is actually evidence of relational death. You see how that works? Yeah, you might not be stepping on each other's toes, but you expect nothing of him. You want nothing from him. And you think he wants nothing from you, expects nothing from you, asks nothing from you. But what if he is a wholehearted God interacting with half-hearted people? That's judges. That's the people in this room. That's the only, it's the only people that God has to interact with or relate to is half-hearted or no-hearted or empty-hearted people. The point of the scriptures is this, though. That if there is one who is all in, everywhere with everyone at all times, always has been and always will be, if there is one who is wholehearted, it is God himself. And so the only permutation that matters that we need to give our attention to and that the Bible gives its attention to is what does a wholehearted God do with half-hearted people like us? When I was thinking of the graphic for this, I think about those things. Ella did a phenomenal job with this. My first idea, I was like, it's not going to work. It doesn't make sense without a long explanation. But what I wanted it to be like, if I, if, you know, if someone ever wrote a book on judges, I would tell them, you know, what on the front cover, what you need to put on the front cover is a rubber band. Because when you read through the book of judges, and if you come back and you hear this stuff and the rest of the, it's going to get absolutely crazy town with how deep these people descend into darkness and sin and destruction. Um, And what what you'll never find is God throwing in the towel with his people. You will want to throw in the towel with his people. You will be cheering on, squish them, get them, and he'll never do it. And it's because of what he says in the beginning of chapter 2. He reminds his people and he reminds you tonight what kind of God he is. And he says, I have made an everlasting covenant with you, a promise, a vow to my people. I will never leave you and never forsake you. So he almost creates a dilemma for himself when his people run and run and run. And it's like, I have one end of a rubber band and you have another. And that thing stretches all the way to the back brick wall. What would you be thinking if I had a rubber band and one of you did and you ran to that wall and it didn't snap? What question comes up in your mind? What is that thing made of? What is that thing made of? How is it not snapping? I think the main point of this book and the reason it's in your Bible is for you to ask the question, what is this God made of, so to speak? What is his love made of? What's his covenant promises made of? What is his promise to not hold you against you? To not hold your past against you, your present against you, your future against you. What is this 
stretchy covenant, this love, this compassion, this long-suffering, what in the world is it made of? How does it hold? How does it not snap? There's a song we sing here in RUF every now and then. I know you know it. It's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. There's a line in there that answers one of the questions of what is this made of? What is he made of? This uncreated God who made you. What is, what is his love made of? What holds? What explains its hold? Its staying power that it never snaps. Even with half-hearted disciples who run and run and run and run. I think of that when I think of what holds Jesus on the cross. It's a point the gospel writers want you to ask. It's a question because he says... Certainly, if you're the son of God, you could command a legion, a a battalion of angels to come and end all of this right now. What holds him there? How does it not snap? How does it not break? How does he not just end it all there? What holds him there? The hymn says it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Friends, when I said a second ago that God is willing to not hold you against you. He's not willing to hold. He he is willing to not hold your past against you, your present, your future. The only reason that can be true if he is good and holy and just is because he held you against Jesus. He held your past against him. He held your present against him. He held your future against him. And he gives to you freely through his love and through his grace. Jesus is past. Jesus is present. Jesus is future. That good news is right in here. It's in the book of Judges in your Old Testament. Freely for the offering for you tonight and in the future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us this semester. Help me. Teach me and teach my friends. Wrestle with us, get into our brains, get into our hearts, get into our emotions and wrestle us down. And till we say, uncle, until we say, Lord, I believe it. You are good. The the rubber band stretches your love endures in Jesus. Make Jesus beautiful again to us. Undistract us by letting us see you again. We pray in your name. Amen.